Mel Tempest is known as a fitness business influencer, hands-on health club owner, ebook author, and presenter. Mel has known to be controversial, challenges the status quo, and lives outside the square. Her skill set is current on trend, savvy, and in demand. Her primary goal is to get more health club owners moving towards innovation, technology, and social media success. Her own success comes through tough and humble beginnings. Mel Tempest now presents to you the Gym Owners Podcast. More than just the business of fitness. Proudly supported by National Fitness Business Alliance. Good morning, it's Mel Tempest here from the Gym Owners Podcast. And this afternoon, I'm interviewing Scott McKenzie, Corporate Lawyer and Director at Velocity Legal in Melbourne. Scott is not your average corporate lawyer. He's straight talking, he thinks outside of the box, and he's always one step ahead of the pack. Scott was presented with the Rising Star Award in 2015. Scott has a long list of achievements including advising a consortium on the acquisition of multiple gyms and health clubs across Australia. He has a long list of testimonials applauding him for his leadership, skills and attention to detail. Scott is also known to have a passion for quirky socks. Good afternoon Scott. Good afternoon Mel. Thank you for a fantastic introduction. I have seen those socks. Dude, what were your thoughts on the mail? Give me your honest feedback. Well, I thought, uh, look, everybody has to have uh, something that's part of their branding that's slightly different, and I think you'll be known as uh, Socky Scott for quite some time. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. I'm not sure that's the kind of reputation I was going for, but if that's what happens, so be it. So be it. You'll be flooded with socks through the mail shortly, I'm sure. <laughs> fantastic. That's all right. We're going to get stuck straight into our podcast this afternoon and we've got three hot topics that we want to chat about. So let's get it all underway. Now the first one which is an absolute major topic in the fitness industry at the moment causing a lot of confusion between club owners, personal trainers and contractors and that is the topic of contractors. And look I have to be quite honest with you, I'm just going to go through and say to you what I think an employee is and what a contractor is and then we can go on from there. So my understanding of an employee of a club is somebody that I employ and they wear my my branded staff uniform and I pay them weekly or fortnightly and I pay their tax and I pay their superannuation where they're entitled to it and they sign off on a job description and uh, any other entitlements that they're entitled to as an employee of my gym, they get paid. Now, there's confusion with contractors. My understanding of a contractor is that you get somebody in who has an ABN, you sign a legal contract which is written up by somebody like yourself, they have their own ABN, they pay their own tax, and they are not there to do any of the duties in your club so they pay a rent to to utilize the facility but they are not there to work your reception desk or to do gym floor programs and most certainly not to barter to lessen rent and what I mean by that is hypothetically a trainer pays $250 a week in rent and I say hey Joe instead of paying $250 why don't you work on my reception desk for eight hours and I won't pay you but I'll reduce your your rent to 150 and I'm seeing a hell of a lot of this so could you give me a breakdown on employee versus contractors 
Yeah, Mel, that's a, a pretty fantastic summary that you just did there. If the, if the fitness industry stuff doesn't work out for you, you've definitely uh, got a job as a corporate lawyer. <laughs> I would so, love to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're a little bit too active uh, active for it. But um, yeah, so, I mean, that was a really good summary. Um, to kind of look at it from a very high level, the way that I like to explain it to people is, an independent contractor is basically someone who is conducting their own business within your business. That's fundamentally what it comes back to. So, of course, they should have discretion around how they do things. And as you kind of pointed out before, they shouldn't really have to do things like, um, you know, man your reception or, or clean up your gym or anything like that because that's probably less characteristic of someone who is actually conducting their own business under your roof. Now, someone like, um, someone would fall more into the employee type of category where it's abundantly clear that they are just a component within someone else's business. What I mean by that is they're effectively controlled by the employer and they're given tasks and duties to do and they don't really have as much discretion to work hours or, or to do tasks that they personally think they should be doing. So I guess that's kind of a bit of a high-level summary to, to tack on to the summary that you just uh, previously mentioned. So, Scott, with contracting, what are some of the issues that the club owner can find themselves, the predicaments that they can find themselves in, in a situation where, I mentioned it before, where they're not paying somebody to work on the front desk and they've done a barter with the rent? Because I see that as the personal trainer. They're not getting paid for the hours on the front desk. They're also... Secondly, they're losing income because they can't train anybody. And thirdly, they're missing on their entitlements. So I see three points that a personal trainer is missing out on or they're trading it in just to reduce the rent. But what are the issues that a club owner can find themselves in if the, if the personal trainer was to report them? Well, it's, um, it's quite a, a serious issue um, and it's something that is notoriously done poorly in the fitness industry and I've seen a lot of um, a lot of examples of this both being done poorly and being done well. Now pretty much what it comes down to is there will be a number of characteristics of any particular relationship where you're engaging someone um, to work in your premises effectively. So Depending on those characteristics, you might fall into the employee or the contractor category. Now, if you think that someone is a contractor, but you are actually completely wrong and they are actually an employee, then there is a significant legal risk there because what will happen and what cases have demonstrated is that employee... Who, thought, who you thought was a contractor effectively can come back at you and make a claim for all of their accrued employee entitlements throughout the duration of their engagement at your gym. So if you strip back all the legal detail, it basically means for club owners, there's a significant legal and financial risk that if you get this wrong or if you do the wrong thing, that you're going to financially be punished for it. 
And there are a number of kind of workplace laws around this as well. So on top of having to, you know, pay someone employee entitlements retrospectively, which can really add up, you can also be up for, you know, fines and penalties for effectively engaging in what's known as sham contracting. Hopefully that's, uh, that provides a little bit of info that you're looking for, Mel. It, it does, Scott. So I'll ask you the next question. How common do you... Th I mean, there's over 4,000 clubs in Australia, and I'm not saying that every club is doing it, but percentage-wise, what do you think is a, a, a good percentage of people who are probably doing the wrong thing? Oh, and it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, to me, first of all, the acceptable answer would be zero percent. Everyone would be doing the right thing in a perfect world. But I would say based on um, what I've seen and the, the sample pool of my clients and the situations I've seen directly, it would be about 40% to 50% of gym owners who think that they have independent contractors and think that that's the arrangement that they have there, where in reality the people that they have working for them are more under the employee category. Okay, so I come to you and I say, you know, hi, Scott, you know, I want to employ some contractors. Can you do some uh, paperwork for me? And I know that you can do that. What are some of the things that will be in that contract that club owners aren't aware of that they should be aware of? Uh, there'll be a, a range of things, um, which basically it, it'll be important that the documentation clearly sets out that that contractor is conducting their own business under your roof. So, for example, there would be acknowledgements around the fact that the contractor bears the risk of someone not paying or anything like that. There'll be an acknowledgement around the fact that the contractor can dictate what hours they actually want to work, when they want to work and, and things like that. Um, also, the contractor should have the discretion to use whatever equipment that they so choose, whatever training programs they might want to use. Um, and, you know, they can wear their own uniform and, and, and things like that. You really want to build up the characteristics of someone conducting a business under your roof. That's what you want to do when you're documenting it. But the absolutely critical thing is that you get the documentation right, but you also get the implementation right. And what I mean by that is it's all well and good to have a well-drafted independent contractor agreement, but it's not going to be very useful if you're not abiding by what that agreement actually says. So if you have a, an agreement which says, yep, you can wear your own uniform, you can dictate your own working hours, and everyone signs on the dotted line, but then in the actual gym, there's the gym owner saying, no, 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 you have to work nine to five and you have to wear our uniform, then that's not going to be a good situation to be in. That's not going to help at all. But then, you see, Scott, I would look at that situation and say, well, if they're wearing the, the gym owner's uniform, I would look at the person and say, well, you're not a contractor because you're representing somebody else's brand. Yeah, it's, to me, that's... That is an important characteristic and courts have made it clear that it, there are no kind of 
one or two or three characteristics which will automatically make someone a contractor or an employee. It is a matter of looking at all of the circumstances. But to me, that is a persuasive circumstance. If I'm walking around in a gym um, and I'm wearing someone else's branding, that doesn't really tend to indicate that I'm conducting my own business under their roof. That's my, my personal view on it anyway. Well, and I agree with that because I would look at that and say you're wearing, um, you know, the club's logo, therefore you're building the club's brand, but you're paying the rent where, where the contractor should be wearing their own uniform. So, <laughs> yeah, and I so, which leads me to uh, two more points. The first point is insurance. Should the club owner ensure that the contractor has their own insurance? Yeah, that's that's one thing that I certainly, in my view, the club owner should be making sure that anyone that they engage as an independent contractor has appropriate insurance in place. And I know you're very well across these issues, Mel. Um, I equally know that there are a lot of club owners who, who aren't across these issues. But once again, that's a characteristic of, doing your own business under someone else's roof, you have to look after your own insurance. You have to make sure that you've got that in place. And then, of course, the gym owner will want to make sure that someone running around and, and doing their own thing under their roof has appropriate insurance protection in place. Well, reality is we drive our own cars. We have to have our own car insurance. So if we're going to drive our own business, we have to have our own business insurance. Spot on. That's a good analogy. It is. It is. I just thought of that on the spot too. Fantastic. <laughs> so let's let's jump the fence and let's become the personal trainer. So I've come out of my RT. I'm all enthusiastic. I want to start up my own business. Uh, I go to my gym where I've been working out for the last five years, and they say, "Look, Mel, yeah, come on board uh, as a as a contractor." And they give me the paperwork. What are some of the warning signs in the contract that all is not good? Um, well, pretty much you'd be looking for any disconnect between what was promised in terms of the working conditions and the documents. So taking that example we were referring to before, if you're sitting there with a club owner who's saying, oh, yeah, you'll have to buy our uniform with our branding and wear it, but if the contract says you have complete discretion about what you wear, then that's a pretty big red flag. Um, but also, you just want to make sure that the contract looks professional and clearly sets out your obligations in layman's talk. You shouldn't have to kind of delve through a 50-page contract full of legal jargon and case references and, you know, legislation references, which obscures what you're actually supposed to do. Okay. Is there some type of advisory service that personal trainers can go to to seek help? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of what I do, I certainly um, am happy to assist with those kind of queries, but I mainly do act for club owners um, and advising them on getting this stuff right. But for PTs, I recommend actually using a service called um, JobWatch if you're based in, in Victoria. It's a completely free um, employment kind of law advisory service for employees. Um, and, yeah, if you just Google it, you can call up their, their hotline. And 
I've heard that they're pretty responsive and obviously the fact that it's free means it removes one of the, the major barriers to, to getting legal advice. Okay, so that's JobWatch in Victoria. That's correct. Um, I think there are similar kind of organisations throughout Australia, but I'm, I'm confident that uh, yeah, JobWatch in Victoria has, has a pretty good reputation. I've certainly um, steered quite a, a few PTs that have... Uh, approached me towards them over the years. Okay, fantastic. So moving away from contracting, we go into, and this is another hot topic, co-ownership. It's yeah. an absolutely fantastic idea when everybody's sitting around the, the dinner table drinking red wine and, and, <laughs> and doing the cheese and dip thing. You know, everybody wants to go into business with, with each other and they all have these amazing ideas. But I would assume that you've probably seen a, a bunch of situations where family members and friends have, have gone into these businesses and things have fallen apart. Let's be honest about it. It happens. It happens. So what are some of the, you know, the fundamental legal requirements if somebody is contemplating on doing this that you suggest? And what are some of the, the traps also that you've seen occur in these sorts of situations? That's a fantastic question, Mel. So co-ownership arrangements are such an interesting thing and they're a personal kind of passion of mine looking at the legal intricacies of them. But the number one thing that is abundantly clear is you need to get on the same page during the honeymoon period. So when you're all sitting around having you know a glass of wine, getting excited about the business or a potential purchase of a, of a health club or something like that, what you should do is you should sit down and try to work out the expectations moving forward. So that will deal with things like decision-making. So if there are two of you, what happens if you both disagree? What if one of you wants to you know, invest some money in the business, buy some new equipment, but the other one just wants to take the money off the table? Um, what if you want to you know, tack on a sub-tenant within your, within your health club and you know, one of you want to, one of you doesn't want to? It's dealing with things like that, which... It, it might sound a little bit almost unnecessary, but I can tell you time and time again, people come to me when these things go wrong and it is absolutely catastrophic for the business if there isn't an appropriate co-ownership agreement in place. And you've got to get it done during the honeymoon period because that's when everyone's talking and everyone everything's all amicable. Um, and then you sort things out, you get it done once, you get it done properly, everyone's aligned from that point onwards. And as there are bumps in the road, you can sort through them in a very effective way without having to go off to court or without having to, you know, find yourself in a precarious position. Um, some of the common things that I've seen are just general falling outs between co-owners. And this applies whether there are two co-owners, three co-owners or 10 co-owners, it doesn't matter. If one of the co-owners gets a bit upset and throws their toys out the cot, you've got to make sure that the business is protected in that situation and that there are very clear legal pathways for everyone to move through 
so that everything doesn't end up kind of destroying the business? I mean, I would look at, um, a, a, you know, a, a partnership or something that was dissolving a little bit like a divorce would, or even worse. Would you say that? Absolutely. That's why I refer to these business co-ownership agreements as business prenups because that's what they are. Like it's it's exactly like a romantic relationship without the romance. That's that's what business relationships are. And money is pretty much the um, the center of the relationship, which can create a whole host of issues. So, yeah, I think that's a very good analogy, Mel, and it's certainly a comparison that I draw all the time. Yeah, whenever people ask me about partnerships and, and my opinion, I always say to them, you really need to live together before you work together. And let's face it, friends don't really live together, do they? And, you know, family certainly don't live together. And then they think that, because let's face it, you know, you see each other at family events and then you all go home to your own homes. But working together 24-7, 365, and that's what owning a business is all about. It's not a part-time job. It's a full-time job. And you see people in their different, um, you know, personalities, their morning, their afternoon, and their nighttime uh, personality. So I think if you're going to go into a partnership, whether it's with one person or with a group of people, it is something that has to be taken seriously um, because, as you know, it can become very, very ugly. Absolutely. And the, the issue is, I mean, you can build up a really good business and then find yourselves five years down the track and, you know, it might be worth a, a million dollars, two million dollars, but then one little issue can completely decimate the value of the business purely because there wasn't an appropriate co-ownership document in place. And Unfortunately, it does happen and it's far too common. So, yeah, definitely my advice is to make sure you get your business prenup, which is, you know, a co-ownership agreement in place at the beginning. Absolutely love that. Business prenup sounds fantastic. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> so let's go on to topic uh, number three. Unfortunately, there was some sad news in the fitness industry in the last couple of weeks where a young lad passed away. Um, in a club. So we're just going to talk a little bit about under 18s being in health clubs when they're 24-7 and they're not manned by staff. Now I don't do this in my own club and I try to recommend to everybody if your clubs are manned don't have people under 18 in the club. So yeah. what are your thoughts on that and how can club owners um, protect themselves and what do they need to know about allowing um, young adolescents under the age of 18 into their unmanned clubs? Yeah, it's a, a very good question, Mel. And, yeah, it was um, very unfortunate to, to hear about that accident which um, which did occur, which unfortunately ended up in, you know, that, that's, um, that young bloke's death. Now, from a legal perspective, the important thing to note for club owners is you have a duty of care and... That extends to members that you allow into the club. If you allow minors into the club, so people under the age of 18, that has a very, very different risk profile to your average adult. So you will have to take conscious steps to make sure that you are protecting um, you know, members who are underage and to make sure that there are appropriate safeguards in place to make sure that you are 
satisfying your duty of care and discharging it fully. To me, personally, my view on it is if I was running a health club, I would restrict membership ages just like you have, Mel. That's my personal view, but I do understand that some club owners um, want to be able to offer um, training to, to minors, which is perfectly fine, but you do have to appreciate that heightened legal risk and you have to take steps to make sure you protect yourself. So things like... Um, in your membership terms and conditions, you should make sure that there is a specific clause which deals with minors in the gym and which effectively you will get the parent or guardian of that minor to sign off on, uh, on the um, membership terms and conditions and also to make a, a bunch of promises to the gym to make sure that their welfare is appropriately looked after. So... Yeah, it's a bit of a minefield from a legal perspective, bringing minors into the gym. As I said, I personally would try to steer clear altogether, but you can um, put protections in place to make sure you mitigate your risk if you are determined that you want to go down that path. So let's just take a step back. So we've got a 24-7 facility, and obviously you wouldn't have anybody under the age of 18. In, in the facility. So now we're staffed. Let's assume we're a staffed club. The 16-year-old comes in with the parent and you stipulate that. Do you see that yep. as being a good account of duty of care? That, I mean, that could certainly um, mitigate risk, but that in itself isn't going to be enough. So if you, you know, if you do that and a parent comes in with them, that's all well and good. But then if you've got, you know, your PTs running around the gym and, you know, one of them's encouraged, encouraging the minor to do something a bit silly, then, you know, you can still create legal risk there. So just because you get the parents to come in doesn't give you an absolute 100% protection. But in, in these situations, nothing's going to really give you 100% protection. So it's a matter of mitigating that risk to the greatest extent possible to make sure you're doing everything you possibly can to look after the welfare of that minor. I think the fitness industry really needs to look at the under 18 age group and I say this because let's face it we have an enormous enormous obesity issue here in Australia and a lot of that is our 15 to 18 year old adolescents so if we're restricting them from the gym, that means that we're saying to them that they have to find activity outside of a club, which then relies on parents to get them from activity one to activity two. And we're encouraging exercise. You know, we're always encouraging young adolescents to, to exercise, to get fit, to get healthy, etc., etc. So obviously we need to cover our asses, to speak, yeah. um, to allow these kids under 18 into our clubs. So for those gym owners that are already doing it, and those gym owners that, that want to do it. I know that you're saying have it in your, your membership form, but what else is there to do? What about insurance? Yeah. Where, where do we stand with our insurance? Yeah, it, it depends on your individual insurance policy. Some insurance policies specifically carve out any um, payments being made by the insurance company in, in the event that a minor is injured. So the devil can be in the detail for insurance contracts. So it's important to make sure that, that you know, you're comfortable on that front if you're allowing minors in. 
I would also be making sure that if that minor came into your gym and, you know, was engaging in exercise, that appropriate kind of restrictions were put in place. So, for example, lifting over certain weight thresholds should just be categorically banned for members under the age of 18. So you wouldn't want someone who is under the age of 18 attempting to, you know, lift more than one and a half times their body weight or, or something like that. You would want to have very specific requirements about what they can and can't do because you don't, at the end of the day, you don't want to expose them to risk of injury because that would completely be counterproductive in terms of addressing those kind of issues that you were talking about earlier, Mel. So if I come to you and I go, oh, God, Scott, I've got um, 150 minors coming into my club. What can I do right now to fix that situation besides cancel the membership? Can I come to you, Scott McKenzie, and say, I need you to draw me up um, an A4 legal requirement that I need to present to these minors or to present to their adults and fix the problem that I have now in my club? Yeah, a, a contract will get you some of the way there, but it won't 100% you know, make you free from legal risk. It'll just be a matter of doing everything that you can possibly think of to really look after that minor and make sure that you know, they have access to the equipment that they need to, but their risk of getting seriously injured is mitigated to the greatest extent possible. So things like, as I said, you know, the weight limits are a good practical example. I know that some gyms ban strength training um, kind of altogether for, for people under the age of 18 and they only allow them to do kind of cardio classes. So, Scott, with strength training that you just mentioned beforehand, what about group fitness programs that have barbell classes? Are they suitable for minors? Um, personally, I'd say it's most likely that they would be um, because it's unlikely that you'll be lifting an astronomical weight during kind of those kind of group fitness classes. And also there's a degree of active supervision there. So you would hope that, your fitness professional that you have running that group fitness class would have the the um, kind of foresight and the perception to be able to work out if that minor is exposing themselves to too much risk. Maybe, you know, their form isn't great, which is something that the instructor can correct. And, yeah, it, it certainly does mitigate the risk a lot, and that, that's something that I personally would think would be okay. All right. So reality is uh, with uh, minors, I think that all club owners really need to sit down for half an hour or so and have a chat to their to their solicitor and um, know that they're, they're doing the right thing, that they are passing on the duty of care to these young guys and also check with their insurance company. Um, the reality is, and, and we both know this, that insurance doesn't cover us 100%. There is yeah. always going to be issues with it, but as long as we, we check out and we speak to our solicitors, we speak to our insurance company, and that we know that we're doing the right thing at the end of the day, then we, we can't really be scolded for it. Would you say that? Absolutely. And it is a bit of a minefield trying to work through the legal requirements with, with this stuff. And it's a, a situation where the law hasn't kept up very well with the commercial reality of the world. And it's, it's unfortunate because, as you pointed out previously, there's, 
this kind of obesity epidemic that we need to address. And the law isn't particularly helpful in, in this sense. So we'll move, we'll move on from that. So I'm really looking forward to what you've got to say about this one. So buying or selling a gym, tips and traps, and how can a club owner really work out the value of their business? Let's yeah. go. Tell me. Great question, Mel. So buying or selling a business, it's obviously a very exciting time. This is a situation where a buyer will have vastly different um, objectives to a seller. So if you're buying a business, you want to make sure that effectively that there are no skeletons in the closet, that you're aware of every kind of circumstance that you need to, you've got you know, your eyes wide open as you're walking in and, and taking over the business. For a seller, you've got one objective and that is to walk away with a check for the purchase price and to disappear off into the sunset without having to worry about any legal claims in the future. So in terms of a tip for both of them, you've got to make sure that the contract of sale actually facilitates those objectives that I've just explained. There's no good you buying a gym, buying a health club, buying a studio, and, and not having those loose ends all tied up before you go in there. You want to make sure that the seller actually has an obligation to provide you with all relevant information before you pay them their money. And also, if there are any skeletons in the closet, that you have an appropriate way of, um, I guess, making a claim against that seller for, for being a bit misleading. Now, if you are selling your gym, you want to make sure that the contract of sale actually facilitates you walking away without uh, having residual legal exposure. So if there are any claims made against um, the seller, you want to make sure that you can just very quickly knock them on the head. So... Something that pops up quite regularly is someone sells their gym, but then, you know, six months, a year down the track, performance starts to taper off a little bit. The gym doesn't perform as well. And then the seller, uh, sorry, the buyer goes back at the seller and says, oh, I'm suing you because you promised it would be a good performing gym and it's not anymore. Where in reality, that's probably because of the operation of the gym by the person who bought it. Correct. So, long story short, Mel, you've got to make sure if you're a seller that you can walk off into the sunset with your purchase price. If you're a buyer, that there are no skeletons in the closet that, you know, create issues for you. In, in terms of your question about the value of the business, such a good question and something I get asked quite regularly. Um, at the end of the day, a business owner is going to say and, and come up with a figure and they're going to say that their business is worth a certain amount, but we are so biased as business owners. That's the reality of it. Um, and our perception of value might not be accurate in terms of what someone who's truly independent would come in and say. So... What often happens in the context of a business sale is an independent valuer who does that kind of stuff day-to-day -day may be appointed to, to 
take a look at the business, take a look at, you know, the equipment, the way it operates, the, the staff, and, and all of those kind of things, and to look at the financials of the business and come up with a proper independent valuation of the business. And to me, that is the only way that you can properly work it out because everyone, you know, will have a different figure that they pluck out of the air unless they're kind of a qualified professional who does it day to day, who does valuations day to day and actually understands the different kind of mechanics of calculation. Okay, so let's say I wanted to sell my business. Do I do I ring my accountant and say, tell me what my business is worth? Or, as you just said, there are specialists in the industry. How do I find a specialist? Um, well, a good question. I mean, your accountant would probably be your first port of call, as you rightly identified. And that's, you know, what most gym owners would do. Your accountant will be able to give you a good rough estimate. Um and some accounting firms do actually have valuers who work within their firm. So that's a good first port of call. But if they, if your accountant says to you, oh, I'm really not sure, then you're left in a bit of an awkward position where you should have to try and find someone who's an independent valuer. And there are a heap of independent valuers who, who work in, in the industry um, so it could just be a matter of uh, speaking with your, you know, friends or business contacts or even your accountant about getting a referral to someone who they trust and who they think is good. Um, and then I guess a third step that um, is commonly explored is uh, speaking with a business broker who specialises in the fitness industry and getting them to give you an indication of what they think the business is worth based on businesses that they've sold recently. Um, and yet business brokers can be can be quite handy in that sense because they their, their job is basically to match a buyer and a seller of a business up and to make sure that the transaction goes smoothly. So I guess there are three, um, yeah, three ports of call that I just mentioned, your accountant, if they can't help you, then an independent valuer and then also a business broker might be helpful as well. Scott, we've had an absolutely fantastic chat this afternoon and we've spoken about some great topics, contracting, we've spoken about co-ownership, tips and traps of um, you know, buying or selling a gym and of course miners in our clubs. So obviously our listeners will want to come back to you and probably have some questions. So where's the, the best place to get a hold of Scott McKenzie? The best place is by email, Mel. I love a, a kind of personal touch with things. So yeah, I'm, I reckon just uh, to drop me an email at Scott, S-C-O-T-T, at Velocity Legal, V-E-L-O-C-I-T-Y, legal.com.au. And then that way I can, um, yeah, have a chat and, and answer your questions and a bit more of a personal touch rather than, you know, uh, any other means. So that's, uh, that's what I'd recommend. Well, just before we, we finish our conversation, Scott, tell me, 2018, will you be running any day workshops or half-day workshops for people in the fitness industry to come along and learn a little bit more about the legal side to working in the fitness industry? Absolutely, Mel. It's something I'm very keen on doing because I think 
in terms of the legal side of things, there are so many misconceptions in the industry. Um, I haven't locked down a precise date or anything like that yet, but I tell you what, I'm, I'm just so keen to keep spreading the word and, and to help, you know, build the, the knowledge and the education in this industry around legal issues because I think a lot of people are, are very unsure about what they should be doing. And certainly, Mel, if there's an opportunity to, to do something with you or at the same time as, as you kind of doing an educational piece, obviously I'd be, I'd be on board with that. Well, Scott, I just might hold you to that. <laughs> well, you've got it recorded, Mel. That's, I have, uh, I have, I have. <laughs> so, Scott, I really do appreciate your time this afternoon. I know that you're a busy man. So I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks' time. And um, as uh, Scott said, you're more than welcome to contact him, Scott, at velocitylegal.com.au. And I do know that Scott is on LinkedIn also, so perhaps jump over there and have a look. Scott, have a fantastic day, and we'll chat to you real soon. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Mel. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for joining the Gym Owners Podcast, sponsored and supported by National Fitness Business Alliance and Gym Click Media. Find Mel Tempest on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Join us next time for the Gym Owners Podcast.